people think that they just launch a campaign and money comes in. Oh, that's not how it works, right? If you're building a business and you don't have the confidence to talk to your sister, your cousin, your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, your neighbors about how special this is, why do you expect someone on the other side of the world would just be like, oh, she's amazing, let's invest? No, you gotta show that those who are closest to you believe in you first. So it does take some time and I think people with the appreciation for the commitment, dedication that go out there to fundraise are also tend to be the most successful. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 52 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya, and today's guest is Kendrick Nguyen, co-founder and CEO of a startup Code Republic, which aims to be the Amazon of private investing. In this episode, Ken shares what it was like growing up as a Vietnam immigrant in the Bay Area, going from being a trading securities lawyer to becoming an asset manager and teaching fellow at Stanford, and now the co-founder and CEO of Republic, one of the top equity crowdfunding platforms in the States. We talked about what it was like being on a mission to democratize investing and some of the hallmarks of its most successful campaigns to date, including Gumroad, who recently raised $5 million in less than 12 hours from just under 7,000 private investors. So are you ready for Kendrick's story? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. When you were nine, your family immigrated from Vietnam to San Francisco because of the Vietnam War. And I wonder, given how young you were, what that transition like and what it was like growing up in the heart of the Bay Area where all the tech innovation like Google, Amazon, Facebook were at. I still have some memories about being a kid in Vietnam, but quite frankly, traveling or changing country or an environment for a child is never like such a hugely pleasant thing, right? You kind of like crave that stability. Uh, but I grew up in a very, very loving family with parents and older siblings. And so that really was a great foundation uh, for any change. So I really uh, feel very fortunate that, that I had the childhood in a different country but that the latter years of my childhood was in America. Did you love dispute resolution and was that why you chose law in the end? I was watching a few shows on just American televisions. As you know, in Asia, law is not as big uh, a profession in terms of its place in society. But in the US, you can turn on the TV and there are like eight different TV shows about lawyers arguing. And I love just like the human dynamics. And I think one of the things that drew me to it is the ability to influence, to like make a difference. Of course, you're fixing someone or making someone feel better in the hospital. That's a very impactful way. But there's something fun about watching people who dress up in court and talk for half an hour and change people's opinions. So I think how I got interested in law was by watching TV shows. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the thought process behind you doing neuroscience in your undergrad and then eventually doing law in Berkeley and Oxford? Even though I always wanted to be a lawyer growing up, like that is in middle school and high school. For my parents, they were like, you got to be a doctor or an engineer because law wasn't something that they were as familiar with. And so the notion is not that you had to, it's that it's very clear that there's a strong preference, you know, if you're a good son and I can have a successful role in society, that's your two choices. And so even though I ended up studying part of law, neuroscience was the foundation that, hey, if I wanted to, I could then go to medical school. So as entering college, I was like, all right, neuroscience, I like people, I like law, and this is a deep science space that would be the undergraduate degree because being a medical doctor is a doctorate degree in the US. You need an undergrad, you take the MCAT, and then you go to medical school. Because of that, I ended up studying neuroscience as an undergrad to keep myself options later on in life or four years later. So you end up becoming a securities and patent litigator at Goodwin Proctor. Why was that? Did you know from day one that this wasn't where you wanted to be for the rest of your life? On day one, I knew it wasn't 
what I wanted to be doing for the rest of my life, though I was thrilled to be doing it. So I skipped a couple of grades, but ended up still deciding to go to law school. And my family ended up was being very supportive of it. I think me being the last one of five had a lot to do with it. Had I been the oldest one, I think the pressure to do medical school would have been high and I would have been a terrible doctor. I hate blood. I don't like the neon lighting in any environment, certainly not the hospital environment. And when people are not well, I feel sad, but I also feel down, you know? So I would have made a horrible medical doctor or a scientist for that matter. So luckily, I ended up pursuing law, and the career for law in the U.S. is also pretty unique. You got to get into like the bigger firm because they pay more and they're more prestigious. And so uh, actually, Goodwin Proctor, on day one, I knew that I need to learn all that I could, but being a lawyer in a large law firm wasn't for me. That's why I was doing patent litigation, securities litigation, and then some merchant acquisition, which is a very different area of the law that people typically don't combine just to, again, broaden my horizon, opening up possibilities. So how do you end up deciding to go in-house to one of the largest asset management companies in the States? Luck in that most of the time, it would be a dream transition for a large firm attorney to go in-house, particularly at a hedge fund or an investment firm. But it would take like 10 years or so. So someone after two, three years through a strings of events that looking back, I felt quite uh, lucky uh, that people People took a risk and opened the door for me. But I ended up becoming the, the chief for U.S. counsel for a very large firm right in the middle of the financial recession in 2008. In life, you know, 50% of what everything that you do, at least 50% luck and outside of your control, the goods and the bad. It must have been tough because you were managing over $40 billion in assets. During the greatest economic recession that the world has seen since the 1930s with Lehman Brothers and whatnot as counterparties. So I don't think I slept very much. I think I slept like probably three nights a week without jokes. Actually, every other night was like an all-nighter for a good six months or so. <laughs> <laughs> so after that lifestyle, do you think that's it? I want to go into the academia. You know, it wasn't that the pace of work that encouraged me to do something else. It was that it was getting less meaningful. I've always been able to find the energy in me to work long hours on things that I'm passionate about. But it's the meaning, the purposeful feeling behind certain things. After two years at the firm, I was like, all right, now that the economy is more stable, things are getting back to the normal routine. You move a lot of money back and forth and the learning curve has plateaued out. So it felt to me like, is this the best thing I can be doing, you know, with life? And I started to look around and that was in New York. My family, I grew up in California. Everyone's in California. I started out my law career and was in finance in New York City. And at the time I had not been seeing my parents very much since law school. And so I was like, hey, you know, I think I want to move back to California and spend a little bit more time with my parents who were and are getting older. And an opportunity came up to be in academia. And my parents were in academia as well, college, high school, but they were teachers and professors. And I was like, wow, this would be kind of cool. Since I didn't make it as a doctor or an engineer, maybe I'll be the only one in the family to do something that they had done before, which is teaching. But that's how I ended up coming back to Stanford law school and the business school as a teaching fellow for a few years. You came back to be a teaching fellow at a time when the Dodd-Frank Act was passed. So that must have been a very interesting time for you. And another coincidence in life, right? Because to go back into an academic environment in law and jurisprudence just happened to be at a time when there was a lot of changes in regulatory structure. I call it the legal evolution in the U.S. So in that capacity, got to get 
very involved and meet a lot of people who were instrumental in crafting a lot of these rules and regulations at the federal level in the US. And all of it had to do with securities, with how do you sell and buy stock? How do you prevent investors from getting exposed and cheated, which caused the Great Recession and the Great Depression? And the conversation around that. So it was really, I couldn't have planned for the timing, the value of what it ended up providing me. Were you constantly seeking what else you could do next? Because at the same time, you co-founded a consulting practice and you were also CEO of Canberra Enterprise. Ling, I think in life, all of us all have the desire to be more. And I think in the academic environment, it was amazing intellectually, but the pace of life was very slow. I used to the New York pace of life, of Wall Street, of finance, of big law. Uh, so I ended up finding myself with some extra time and whether to spend that extra time doing more academic research, I'm like, ah, well, why don't I try, you know, get my feet wet in something else? And that's how almost concurrently also got involved in business and gained some business experience from the perspective of not a lawyer, but as an operator of going out there, building businesses as a COO for a very large organization. It was Canbar Enterprises at the time. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it's still driven by the one common thread, which is we all want to be more than what we are today. And I think that drive also led you to start a nonprofit that was helping underserved children in Asia, especially Vietnam. Yes, people only see the things that work, but people don't see the things that didn't work. Uh, or I must have started in different forums, five, six different initiatives, some non-profit, some for-profit that did not work before, you know, eventually founding Republic. But yes, I did have a non-profit that was collecting money and directing them to schools in Asia, Vietnam and Indonesia at the beginning. But the internet and social media, which is still so new, and that over time, we just didn't have have the traction that made sense and so know when to fold things is also, I think, looking back, an important aspect of being a founder. So you ran that for two years before you decided to fold it. And I think that's when the angel list opportunity came through Stanford. How did that happen? Well, AngelList had some legal challenges at the time because what they were doing was very new and it didn't quite conform with certain aspects of U.S. laws. So they had some significant legal challenges. They were, they were looking to hire their general counsel, actually the first non-engineer hire that they've ever made. And my advisor at the time, my mentor at the time at Stanford was also an advisor for AngelList. Uh, I got introduced and at the beginning, I was not interested in becoming the general counsel because I was thinking if I just want to be a lawyer again. I go back to New York at a large fund. Why would I join a startup? But a startup is so different in its structure in that it gives every employee a lot more flexibility and possibility. So Naval, the founder of AngelList, told me that like, hey, you don't have to just be a lawyer. You can take on whatever project that you want in so far that you hire people to make all of the legal issues under control. And so in, in addition to becoming an AngelList GC, I left the expansion into Canada and into Europe and launch a bunch of products. But it was probably the first job after like five years out of law school that had shown me that the law in the US, everything is up for changes, that you can change and shift everything. Nothing is static, but coming from the New York big law environment, you think that things are just what they are, they can never change. And that's not true. And I think entrepreneurship, particularly Silicon Valley, is so good at distilling and conveying that message. And you joined Angelus at a time where it was rolling out its syndication model. So what was the kind of work that you were doing there? Angelist is as much a legal tech company as it is a financial tech. A syndication simply means that how do you make it possible for a hundred people to invest into a company, but it shows up as one investor on the company's cap table or document? Because no company wants to deal with a hundred new investor all at once. So how to structure legal documents and make it cheap enough to do that over and over and over again. That's the Angelist syndication model. 
Angelis was also very active in lobbying for the Jobs Act, which is very crucial to the founding of Republic. Can you share a bit about when you first heard about it and what you thought the implications were when it would come into force? Yes. Uh, so this is in the years between 2011 to 2014. And this is a lot of changes under President Obama. And so after the Great Recession in the U.S., the government had a lot of mandate to implement see-through changes in financial regulation. The Jobs Act and Dodd-Frank, it's just a body of law that probably more impactful or more far-reaching than anything that we have seen in the 50 years before that. So it changes every aspect of how you buy and trade and sell public securities as well as private. So there's one main thing that almost every lawyer or every lawyer should know that from the 1930s, the Great Depression in the United States, you got to be a millionaire in order to invest in a private company, meaning a company has to become public in order for a normal person to invest. Otherwise, you got to be a millionaire to invest early. Well, that means that normal people could not invest in startup, which is not possible by a construct of law. And that didn't make a lot of sense, right? Uh, certainly no longer in the 21st century. Uh, so there's a movement of many organizations, Angelis being one, lobbying the Obama administration to see through a component of the law that allows anyone and everyone to invest in very new businesses, startups, as well as restaurants or whatever. Was that a vision that really captured your attention? Is that when you thought for Republic, you would make it the Amazon of private investing? Yes, I, that's when I thought that indeed that would be possible once and for all, that the potential of investing is for everyone to do it. And I still remember a couple of years in high school and in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley, and you hear stories about Google and eBay and all of these tech companies. And I asked my dad and my oldest brother, how come they're not investing? And they just kind of like laugh and they're like, well, because we're not rich, you know, we uh, <laughs> This is more for like rich people, but you see it in the headline news everywhere. Imagine that, how different it would be if children, young people, and adults everywhere feel that what's in the headline news of the Wall Street Journal are things that if they want to, they can access. I think so at the end of the day is everyone wants to feel connected. And I think that if it would enable people to have a sense of equity or financial capability, that would lead to a lot of good. And that's when I was like, whoa, this is exactly a business model that is large enough that I can see myself building for a lifetime rather than just building things and creating things for the ultra wealthy, which had been pretty much my entire world before that, except for academia that was in business. But anything in business that I worked at that was not a nonprofit or academia was involving the ultra rich. And that's all fine and good. But I think here's an opportunity to do things that has a global scale that I think is incredibly impactful for me. And you had this incredible vision. You brought it to Naval and the board to ask for permission to launch Republic. How was that conversation like? Because it sounds like they were very supportive and they even gave you a very large investment. You didn't even have to raise funds for the first year. And you employ employees for AngelList too. Yes. <laughs> you know, I uh, so I think in life, not just what you do, but how you do things. And at the end of the day, uh, it's all about human relationship. So in any job, one of the things that I value so much about my upbringing with hardworking parents is that you just got to do the job well, even if you don't like it. And the moment that you stop liking it and not going to do it well, tell people that you're not liking it and that you don't want to do it anymore. But if you're going to do something, just do it well. So anything that I touch, including at AngelList, I just like give it my heart and soul. And out of that, also a sense of gratitude that here I am, one of the leading tech company. And I think I hope that it showed that the relationship that I had with my colleagues, including Naval, etc., was generally very positive. Because, you know, if you do your best and if you're nice about it, then it tends to be positive. But the, I think the moment was there for me to leave AngelList regardless, because I already didn't feel that it was meaningful enough. AngelList is for millionaires to invest on. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to approach Naval about this and I'm going to let him know that it's time for me to leave. But... 
this this business model that I think that Angelus would not be able to execute and that I would love to be able to take it on and do it. And I didn't know if he and the boy would say yes or no, but they looked at it and they know that they wouldn't be able to do it. And they had enough confidence in me as, you know, almost like their card in this industry to back and to support. And yeah, something that I'm just incredibly grateful for because they didn't have to, and yet they did that. I want to go a little further along in your seeking investor journey because you shared before in your second year, you wanted to raise funds from VCs. You reached over 250 VCs and you only got two of the eight months. Why do you think it was such a struggle to get them on board when you had people like Naval on board already? When you go past year one, people want to see traction, traction in a startup for them to invest, meaning they would invest if they think that this business has a path to becoming a very, very large company. Well, we were building an exceedingly difficult business model in that for anyone to invest, the people don't know what investing means. And it's so new that there wasn't that market. So even we gained some validation in terms of the company that we raised for, but it was not super meaningful because the industry was just that slow. And the second factor may very well be that what we were doing to some would seem to be doing what VC would do, meaning is it competitive? Because if people can raise from the retail public, why would they raise from VC? So there's no question. In fact, I had one VC who told me, who was like, Love you and the team and what you guys have done, but we're not in the business of backing companies that would put us out of business. I only had that once though. Uh, And I I appreciate the candidness. And the third reason is that there was at the time and even now, there's so many changes in innovation and in society that there's so many things that maybe would be more obvious, less regulated. To give you an example, Selling things or even Uber and Airbnb are far less regulated. What we do in selling securities investments to retail investors, say for running a nuclear plant or the hospital, there aren't too many business models that are more regulated than republics. Because of that, it was deemed to have too many hurdles and challenges. But I didn't mind it. I mean, was it tiresome? Yes. But every conversation, every no that you get is an opportunity to understand why people did not see things in your shoes, in your perspectives, and learn what you can from it and just move on. And if I may hark back a little bit to my heritage, uh, my parents immigrating from Vietnam, is that, as you know, most people know, Vietnam was a country that went through a lot of wars. You know, back generations ago, wars between Vietnam and China, then Vietnam and French, then the Japanese, and of course, the American, the US, the Vietnam War. And through all of that, I think there's an ethos. I don't know if it's through everyone, but it's certainly through my parents, which you don't hold grudges because you can't. How can you go through so many things and just be hold grudges all the time? And the second one is that you just got to move forward. That's life. You know, in the railway traffic in Hanoi or Saigon, this chaos is one thing. There's only one way to do it, right? Don't look too much to the left or to the right and certainly don't look back. Just keep biking forward. And I think that's how you got to approach life and challenges and the no's that you get in life is take what you want from it. Just keep on moving forward positively and maybe they'll come back eventually. So you kept moving forward. And the second round, when you tried to race, you said you're more efficient. You focus on blockchain VCs. You pitched 25 and you got six on board in a month. What was the difference? Yes, the difference was that the crypto and blockchain industry had and has a problem that is regulatory novelty. As it turns out, Republic and my background and what we had done with startup is also a framework to fix some important issues, address some important issues within the blockchain industry in the United States. Because of that, Binance, what the largest crypto exchange, saw potential in what we did and came in to back us together with you know, a few of the major firms, many of which are based out of Asia, FBG, uh, GenFund, etc. What were some of the issues that they saw you as mutually solving? The issue is that for a new project in blockchain, When you issue your tokens, 
the tokens are almost certainly considered securities under U.S. laws and likely under many countries' laws as well. So they were selling it to anyone, everyone who wanted to buy. Well, the SEC said no and took some really harsh step against some project. So we had the legal framework to allow people to sell private securities to anyone and everyone. That same law applies to selling tokens that are deemed to be securities to anyone and everyone. So there's only two options. Either you use Republic and you can reach everyday folks, or you can say bye-bye and not involve all of the engineers from Stanford, from Berkeley, who are not millionaires and anyone who's not a millionaire. And that means that there's no adoption for the project and for the industry. So we hold a pretty important key on compliant token distribution in the United States. So one of the biggest decisions that you always do is to curate the kind of companies that come on board Republic. You often say that it's harder to get on than getting to Harvard. So (laughs) the obvious question then becomes, what are your criteria for getting onto Republic? Yes, uh, right now we do so many things. On Republic, you can find real estate, you can find startups, you can find crypto projects. But overall, the curative lens is this. I think we accept less than 3 4% of the applicants. We're an investment platform. We want to make sure that our investors have a decent chance of getting returns on their investment. So obviously, not everyone is going to succeed at building a company. Not all business are going to be bought or going to go public at a huge valuation. So how do we do that curation? It's subjective, but there's some true and try methodology. The easiest way is to interview and look at the people and assess based on their background, on who they are, on how they communicate their vision, whether you think they are going to be able to be the winner in this sector, in this market. If you're going to build the first Vietnamese restaurant chains in Malaysia or or the first Vietnamese restaurant chain in, in Singapore, well, do they make the most amazing pho? Are there no pho restaurants in Malaysia or Singapore? Maybe that there aren't. Is it just specific to a city? Or do they have a unique recipe that's somehow patented that no one has done before? Do they actually even have a pho shop to know that their recipe is really, really good? So these kind of basic questions also apply to deep tech. Why is the person supposed to be the best in AI when her background is a teacher? And it may be that she was teaching herself at home and therefore have this expertise. It's not about credentials, it's about actual expertise and knowledge and capability. And our team were, you know, we came from the venture world. So we are experienced then, you know, compared to the, you know, normal people on how to assess these companies. But there's a big unknown in that we don't want our lens to be the only lens because because we want to make sure that talent capabilities are also things that depends on where you sit in society. So maybe because I went to Berkeley and because I taught at Stanford that I assume that people with that background are more talented. But if I'm a single mom saving money every day, be able to see someone and pick out his ability to deal with money in a very smart way that I don't see. And if that person is building a company in accounting, in finance, maybe her lens is far better than my lens as a single mom who has to deal with money in a very difficult way, you know? So we want to make sure that at Republic, aside from applying the traditional lens of credibility, uh, we also leave the door open for new models and for different views and visions to have their moment in the sun and, and to be validated out. The point you raised about lens to be so interesting because on one hand, you have these VCs and angel investors like Jason Calacanis. I heard your interview with him and he said, some of the companies I passed on appeared on Republic. And you said, yeah, some companies we have, Sequoia would never allow. But then your acceptance rate is already so low at less than 3%. So how does your lens really differ from that of traditional VCs and angel investors when they also focus very much on the founder and who they are? Yes, at a slight risk of upsetting our VC partners, the Sequoia, the Chasing Calacanis of the world, I demonstrated 
for in picking successful company. And even their lens also evolved with time. I probably only know the more basic aspects of how they look at deals. But society is changing and it's changing very, very rapidly. The question here is, is one person, whether it's Jason or Andreessen or myself, not to say that I'm in anywhere near in that bucket, I am not. I'm just saying that is there one individual can possibly have all the lens on what is next, what is talented, what has full potential. One person can see a lot, but still a sliver of the whole picture. So Jason, just seeing one lens, and his view is already very broad in terms of how innovative and how forward thinking has always been. He cares about diversity more than any VC that I know. But one human lens is enough for him to become a multi-billionaire because it's such a large intersection. But what about everyone else outside of that lens? So we want to make sure that Republic leaves that decision some to the general public. That is, if there's a company that fails my land, but receive the interest and backing of, say, a thousand Malaysians and Malaysian Americans, because I don't know anything about Malaysia as a market. And since I don't know enough about the people to know that this is a particularly strong and powerful person and committed based on this cultural narrative. But clearly, there are enough people out there who believe in her. Who am I to say that you're not a fit? I got to make it open so that the founder can receive money from the people who believe in her. So we call it the wisdom of the crowd compared to the wisdom of one. And the wisdom of one is necessary in the early phase for credibility for many things. But what we do at Republic is very different from VC is that we aim down the road that is a much more democratic process in deciding who is valid and who is not. Right now, it is still the Jason and the Andreessen and the Sequoia of the world as the number one signal. But every single passing day, the power of the crowd and the wisdom of the crowd etch its way into this sandbox to build. And was the wisdom of the crowd what led you to accept, and I found this very intriguing, a 12-year-old founder of Quarters, a gaming currency to raise on Republic? I worked for, before AngelList, for the founder of Sky Vodka. It's a vodka brand in the U.S. And he founded Sky when he was 77 years old. And he sold it six years later for $600 million to another company. The lesson working for him was that you can never be too old to be a founder, to build new things. 77 years old. Then the reverse got to be true as well, which is you can never be too young to be an entrepreneur. Now, of course, you're handicapped by a few things. Like if you're not 18, you can't really sign a contract. You can't even have a bank account. So you need people around you like guardians, you know, parents or whatnot. So of course, this founder of Quarters has a unique background. His father was very involved and he's an experienced uh, entrepreneur and venture capitalist. But the idea, and he at one point may still be the most knowledgeable person about crypto who's still a teenager or preteen. But yes, I think the narrative there is that possibility. not handicapped by time, by age, by any state in life for as long as you have a breath in your body and you want to pursue possibilities instead of security, anyone and everyone can do that. But yes, it is indeed about, in some way, the wisdom of the crowd is a manifestation of more possibilities than just venture capital. So what I found intriguing as well is that you don't just research and look into a potential company from afar. You, at least at the very start, you were very involved. When you first launched your first four campaigns, you spent 40 hours of your own time just spending it with all the founders, helping them with their pitch decks. Share a bit about that period and what you were learning from then. I can't believe it's five years ago already, but when we first launched a platform, it's brand new. Founders didn't know about it. There was no investors. So you got to convince people to like, you know, right now, if someone go and launch a campaign on Republic, we have over a million community members out of that hundreds of thousands of active investors. So if your company is compelling, 
you're going to be able to see a lot of people are going to see the page and they may make the decision to invest. On day one, I don't know, we had maybe 10 investors on the platform. So the company got to go out there and pitch and talk to their friends and help raise and close it. And so the four four companies that we launched with in 2016 that believed in what we did ended up becoming close friends because their success was our success. Their failure would mean our failure as well. And so we were like partners in crime even more closely than the companies that launched in recent months or years. And just pounding the pavement and sharing the experience and the privilege of building something new together. How were you building that deal flow, if you will, for yourself? Because as you mentioned, your first year was four companies raised just over half a million. 2020, it's 128 companies, 42 million. This year, already 67 companies. 28 million race. So that is a huge jump. So how are you getting all these companies on? Yeah, you know, this year, uh, by now, we actually have done, I think, well more than 100 million. And we aim to do more than 600 million by the end of 2021. Projected, we'll see. The pace of the industry grows like a snowball. They call it this snowballing effect. As it falls and rolls down, it rolls faster and bigger and faster and bigger. So at the beginning, to push it off the ledge, all hands on deck. I mean, 18 hours a day, sometimes 22 hours a day. And there's no such thing as vacation, but you don't need one because it's so exciting and hard. And so it's kind of like all in effort all the time. But it's about finding like-minded partners who can amplify you. And I think that in life, whether it's in human relationship, family, or certainly building a company, it's about finding partners and advisors and teammates that amplifying and not frictional. What I meant by that is that when I didn't have that network and not just angelists, but tech stars and other people who believed in what we did, shared a message and slowly people came. I didn't know how to do community building. So one of my good friends, the founder of the Malala Fund, her work at Malala, the Nobel Peace Prize, the age of 16, I think, landed us her expertise on community building, on mission statement. All of these things, large and small, come together to push that snowball off the ledge at the very beginning. But the only reason why we were able to do that was that we had a very authentic and a genuine mission that is larger than I want to build a company to make money and be special. That was never the goal. That is not the goal. And I don't think there should be anyone's goal to do anything. We all are special in our own way. And no, you don't need nearly as much money. It's easier for me to say sitting in the United States, I understand, than many people in Malaysia or Vietnam. But particularly those who are listening and who have a laptop and a smartphone, just know that you already have such a strong foundation that you should pursue what makes you happy rather than just money. And I think our mission of making a difference, of changing the status quo so that more founders and more investors can have access really resonate with a lot of people and resonated early on in that we had the support that we couldn't have done without. It sounds very much as though at this point in time, Karim, if I'm wrong, VCs no longer see you as competition. How would you explain to someone coming to you and asking a question, why we raise funds with you and not VCs? The optics about it being competitive is just not true. One, because exactly like you asked, the value added from our model of investing is so different. When Jason invests or when Sequoia invests, they bring an insane expertise and they can open doors in terms of introduction, partnerships that, you know, unparalleled. When people, community, invest, they bring the brand loyalty, the engagement. I'm drinking some tea brand this morning. It's called Yogi, Y-O-G-I. I'm not an investor in Yogi, and so I buy Yogi, but I'm sure the next cup may very well be from Starbucks. Had Yogi presented itself so that I'm a $500 or $100 investor in Yogi, Ling, I may probably sending it to you as a Christmas present. When my mom comes over, I'm going to serve a Yogi tea and say, hey, I'm an investor in this tea brand. Just psychologically, you want to be connected. And once you're connected, 
you're going to talk about it and you're going to share in that success. So the value add for us is branding and marketing. And the value add for traditional VC is more on the professional expertise of one or two individuals who can open lots of doors at once. We are even additive to VC in that we are hoping through wisdom of the crowd, identify talents, identify companies that otherwise would not get any financing, finance them and feed them back to VC when they're large enough. So I think Republic and our business model is very additive, uh, feeding into the whole ecosystem and not in any way competitive with any one component of the startup financing ecosystem. So you mentioned the Republic business model. Could you share a bit about what that is? Well, our business model at the end of the day, uh, we're an investment platform that aims to be the one-stop shop for anyone around the world to come to, whether with 20 US dollars or 2 million US dollars, that they can see things they're passionate about, that they believe in and invest, whether it's residential real estate, whether it's a new technology like blockchain, whether it's a gaming company and get some revenue share, or a company that's very early stage in Silicon Valley, or SpaceX and Robinhood. At one point, we had SpaceX on the platform and was the only place that you don't have to have $400 million to invest to participate. And it was sometime last year. But it meant to be the place where people combine their interest with making profit down the road. And we take a revenue, a fee from the company on the amount raised, and we have a little bit of an upside potential in everything that we touch. So that's like 6% cash and 2% security. It depends on the type of companies and the the industry. It can range from like 2% to 6%. And we have a little bit of an upside interest that also varies depending on the type of deal. And I believe you're the only one of the top three funding portals that doesn't charge investors anything. Is that likely to change? Probably not anytime soon, because we believe that it's still early enough that we want to make sure that investors get the most out of the capital that they deploy. But like I said, the industry changes. It's so new. And so changes are all but expected. For now, we still believe very much that leaving the most in investors' hand in terms of capital deploy is the way to go. And I doubt that this is going to change in the coming months. So we probably also wouldn't see a shift to like a lead investor structure the way WeFunder has done as well. You may see some notion of lead investor that we already have. We have Randy Zuckerberg, former Facebook marketing head, and Chameleonaire. We have Kevin Harrington, one of the leading shark or the original shark investing. So yes, there are going to be new iteration and models being rolled out. But everything that you see right now changed all but expected. So I would love to talk about your actual campaigns. What, from your experience, have you noticed are the hallmarks of successful campaigns? I think it still goes back to companies either that they already have a very strong community. Those are the most successful ones. If you are already a brand with a million or 500,000 users and you just want to give your users the ability to become shareholders, and increasingly you're going to see that being a thing. If that's the case, then the campaign will close very quickly. Now, on the other side, if you're a new company, then having a narrative, a storyline that is special, that can speak to people at home who spend a couple minutes watching a video or listening to you or reading the deal page, that ability to convey passion and potential is key. But The third metric, particularly for the cohort of newer companies, the ability and the willingness in the team to go out there and activate and talk to people. People think that they just launch a campaign and money comes in. Oh, that's not how it works, right? If you're building a business and you don't have the confidence to talk to your sister, to your cousin, your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, your neighbors about how special this is, why do you expect that someone on the other side of the world would just be like, oh, she's amazing. Let's invest. No, you got to show that those who are closest to you believe in you first. So it does take some time. And I think people with the appreciation for the commitment, dedication and go out there to fundraise also tend to be the most successful. 
I first heard about Republic because of Sahil. And I was on Clubhouse and I saw he ran this AMA room saying, oh, I'm raising 5 million. And I was amazed because I was in that room and it seemed like every person that came out said, I love you so much. I'm a first-time investor. Can I increase the cap? And I just thought, wow, you really have people who love you so much. And he raised it in 12 hours. And later on in my research, I realized that he was the first person who was trying out this new SEC change where they raised the cap from 1.06 million to five. And he said he actually wasn't sure how much demand there would be. So I wonder, you know, the behind the scenes, what was he doing? What were you doing to test the waters and see... Can we raise that amount? That's exactly it, Lynn, is that Sahil was out there talking about working his community. And he himself is a celebrity in his own right. But on Clubhouse, on social media, on Twitter, activating the community. And there was tremendous demand. The Gumroad campaign on Republic, the vast, vast, vast majority of investors came in through Sahil's network. We did not have to do a whole lot of Republic in terms of getting the work out because the founder had a huge community and put in so much work. That's why he closed $5 million in a single day, in 12 hours. I mean, that's faster than a flight from New York to San Francisco, then rent a car and drive to Sand Hill Row and pitch Sequoia. You got to repeat that 20 times to get a check from Sequoia. Here's 12 hours, $5 million in the door. It's how powerful it can be. Not everyone can do it, but everyone can do it to some degree. And yeah, it's all about community building. And I think that notion of fairness currently is resonating. So any company that has a community, how can you not consider turning them into your fans and ambassador? Based on your experience, are there specific concrete steps you've observed that founders have done, you have done that help to activate that community? I think repetition, one email is never enough because people are busy. And so in a very clear, succinct way of communicating to them why you're doing this, how you're doing this, and when. And there's a whole playbook on you send out what email in advance through a week later, send another confirmation email, another week later, send another email, be even before the campaign has launched. And then after the campaign, like reaching out on customer service or just being thoughtful about the process. But at the end of the day, it is fundraising from tens of thousands of people. So the methodology, think of it as like a whole marketing go-to-market execution campaign. It's not just turning on the switch and sitting back and wait. And depending on how large and how small a community one has, the legwork that it would take to activate them may vary a great deal. We have, you know, projects that raise millions of dollars, but only from a few hundred people rather than 5,000 or 10,000 because their network are all ultra high net worth and that they're willing to accept, you know, investments are coming in. So it really depends on case by case, but the willingness and the repetition uh, of doing so, I think it's just the the two common traits. I heard Sahil in this clubhouse session with you and a US congressman and Jason, and he was saying that not everyone can activate the way I do. I don't think Vlad of Robin Hood could do it the way I did. But then also heard the CEO of Republic Chuck Pettit said that, you know, most of our competitors specifically say we don't market their campaign, but we do it for you and with you. So I wonder for founders who can't do it the way that Sahil can, what kind of support can you lend them to help activate their community? Yeah, so we we help some in that we have a whole playbook. Sahil didn't need our help. He taught us many things, but we have our own playbook. One of our advisors is the woman who has raised the most in crowdfunding of any platform. She was raising on Indiegogo and Kickstarter. I think she's done over $10 million in a single solo female founder, Catherine Crook of Betterback. And so she gave us a whole playbook. And even if you follow everything there, you can sell a tea brand, even a phone case for at least a couple hundred thousand dollars. It may not be a million, but there is a methodology on how to do this. And we definitely are very, very hands on to those founders who are willing to do that. It's not the lack of knowledge, it's the lack of time and the readiness to follow our know-how. 
We also have a tremendously a strong internal performance marketing team and design. And obviously we have our own newsletter podcast. We do a lot to expose a campaign to our own growing community. The question always comes back to mostly, not all the time, do the founders and the team have the bandwidth to execute on what we ask them to do? If they don't have the bandwidth, would you say that is one of the main hallmarks of a failed campaign? Yes, there's no question about it. Any failed campaign that has launched on Republic that I can think of, and that's less than 5%. Some are due to reasons completely unrelated to it because their business model has changed, factors that require them to end a campaign, or due to a misaligned expectation on time and commitment. Send out an email and they're like, how come that email, you know, I send out that one email that you asked and the question is like, no, I mean, I, for even for the closest friend who fundraise on various campaigns, I usually miss the first two or three emails because I'm busy. And usually at midnight in bed, seeing the fifth email, I was like, oh God, I forgot to make that investment. So here it is. You know what I mean? It's not so that resilience uh, and that commitment is just needed. Has COVID been one of the reasons for failed campaigns? No, not directly. I think COVID affects all of us differently, psychologically, stress level and bandwidth. But in terms of demand, we had grown steadily, if not exponentially, through the pandemic because people still want to deploy $50, $100 into things that they are hopeful that will be strong and profitable down the road, even if all things seems to be chaotic right now. For example, we all got to believe in like green energy at one point, right? And so if you see an idea that is so amazing, and yes, it's not going to be successful for another three, four years, even if your stock portfolio had just gone down and the price of gold is like way, way down, if you can invest $20 in this idea, it gives you that hope and the possibility of making a profit down the road. So because of that pandemic in terms of growth at Republic has not been a fact. And for those who are completely sold by the idea of raising from their biggest fans, their community, I've noticed that there are other competitors as well, like WeFunders, Start Engine. So what sets Republic apart from your competitors? The industry is still very new. Very, very new. So it's actually a very friendly space. Uh, we all have our different lens and certainly different deal, meaning the deals that you see on Republic, you won't see at that time on other platforms and vice versa. At the end of the day, people got to pick for themselves which place they're most connected with in terms of the deals presented and the overall ethos and mission and design and touch and feel. We definitely not for everyone. We definitely have received very large companies that want to raise on Republic, but they operate in adult entertainment or in firearm manufacturing or some other criteria. And we look at it and we're like, we make some money on this, but it's not for us. It's not what we, our team and our community tend to believe it. So I'm just using that as an example that there are major differentiators, but more importantly, Republic is the only place where you come and you fight a lot more than just binary startup investing. Game financing, real estate, crypto, I think we're the only platform that touches it. So in terms of providing the diversity of choices, I believe we're also unique in that sense in the US and outside. But again, it's very early on. So um, any of the other platform success is a success for the industry and it translates into Republic's success as well. So I wanted to talk about Republic Note and I believe the idea came during a congressional visit for you to Washington, D.C. Correct. And as I alluded back in the earlier conversation, we have a very unusual legal framework that can allow digital, which are tokens, and traditional securities to be sold to non-accredited investors. And so when I was sitting there and the, the question in my mind was, wait, it's really hard to 
have someone investing on Republic and providing some metrics of success that he or she can see day to day, month to month, because illiquid investments like startups take many years for you to see your return or your failure. And the notion of the note token of our own digital token is that we're going to attach a portion of our revenue and our profit to the tokens and make and send them out periodically so that if someone invests again, or if she asks her friends to join, Republic is going to grow and the value of the token that she holds is going to go up. So the intention is to enable people to match their Republic success in a way with their own success aside from the specific investments that they make on our platform. And how far are you in building up this tokenization framework for other companies interested in doing the same? We're 99% done, and we're currently already working with some projects to help them tokenize their own equity, their own revenue, uh, or the different assets. So another thing that I was very interested in you doing is Meet the Drapers, and you have this very interesting partnership with them. So I will start with this first question. How did you meet the Drapers? That's a great question. I met the Drapers through Meet the Drapers (laughs) in that I knew of Tim and his illustrious family, and they wanted to do a TV show like Shark Tank, but at home people could invest along the way. And Sony and Tim vetted and chose us out of order. And we now still the only crowd invest reality TV show in the world uh, of that style. Um, So it's been such a fun and incredible experience. I think over time, this is going to be potentially the model of it, the notion of investing in entrepreneurs can be as big as like The Voice, The X Factors and, you know, America's top idol, whatever it may be around the world. We're going to get there as entrepreneurship continues to become not just a point of innovation and economic prosperity, but a thing of mainstream media and entertainment and 6 million people dialing every month to watch Shark Tank every week, sitting back on their sofa and many more online. I imagine that that trend, when it becomes 6 billion people doing that, the world is going to be a really, really fun and prosperous place. So I watched that session where you were the guest judge and I loved it because it was like the really friendly, kind version of Shark Tank. For those who (laughs) don't know Meet the Drapers, what is it and how does your partnership with them work? Meet the Drapers is a show currently on Sony Cable, whereby every single week, three or four entrepreneurs come and pitch three generations of the Drapers and a guest. So Tim Draper, his father, and typically his daughter or his son at time, and a guest. Similar to Shark Tank, providing feedback on whether this is a company, the judges would invest or not invest. But at home, viewers can go to Republic and make an investment as little as $10 or $20 alongside or against the judges. And usually toward the end of the season, the winner, there's a program that can incentivize or rewards people who pick or invest in the companies that Tim also invests in. Now, Tim and any venture capitalist will be the first to admit, they're not always right and often wrong about picking the next company uh, or, or, or not picking the company that ends up being successful. So it's really, truly both an educational show, an entertainment show, and in some way, highlighting aspects of entrepreneurship that I think Shark Tank alone has done a great deal in evangelizing for it, but the elements of Meet the Drapers in terms of community viewership engagement is unprecedented. And I think it's just a glimmer of the future of this space. How is engagement being like from the community? Yeah, I mean, it's air in some like 60 countries, uh, predominantly uh, South Asia, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, and others. But people absolutely love it. People are still new to investing. So you don't see as high a percentage of viewers actually making an investment. But the viewership is amazing, particularly for the first of its kind. So this is a thing you alluded earlier. It's building awareness because it's such a new field and people are not sure what it's all about. And I was very intrigued by how you're very active in being involved in, say, Meet the Drapers. You said you have your own podcast, Profit Back to the People. I wonder, you know, what your thought process is behind building awareness behind this entire new trend. 
Because that's a very, very difficult thing. It's a very long-term journey. Yes, building awareness is not, not something that we just do for our public. It's our conviction that within this decade, just like people everywhere knows that they should be voting, that they should be recycling. Not everyone does it, but everyone knows they should. I think that by the end of this decade, everyone knows that they should be investing in the world around them, the technologies, the people that they believe in. Not everyone will, but everyone knows that they should and are able to. Right now, almost no one knows that. The only way to get there is through media, social media and traditional media, which is why from Randy Zuckerberg to Meet the Drapers to Chameleonaires to many of the celebrities that we have in within our ecosystem, we aim to drive awareness and mainstream adoption through that channel. The most effective way to get people's attention is the media. Uh, so Republic has always had a major emphasis on media and will be more so more intentionally in the months and years to come. I believe you said before you wouldn't say no if the Kardashians wanted to help promote Republic. Yeah, no, for sure. One of if one of the Kardashians, there's no ask that I would not say no to, including tattoo her name on my arm, just because the reach is so powerful. Anyone who has a following, anyone who has a community, and that's all celebrities, they have a moment, they have a way to make such impact to drive the conversation socially away from looking good on Instagram and more fashion brand. All of that is fine and good, but there's always a channel to drive that attention, that following toward things that perhaps in the long run would provide more fulfillment to their own fans than appearances and all of that. So we hope to get to collaborate with many more and more and more influencers as we grow. So you recently raised $64 million for Series A, and I wonder what's the focus for Republic in the coming months? What can we expect from you? We raised over uh, $64, $65. Since inception, we closed on a $36 million Series A. But on the roadmap are things like international expansion, certainly more renewed media effort, and just building out a more robust platform that's easier for users and for investors. So right now, international community members, we have people from over 100 countries, but not intentional. So we aim to build partnerships with platforms or partners overseas and in a way bring our business model beyond the United States. That's certainly a plan for the next 12 months. So right now, only US-based companies can get on Republic. You're saying that maybe in the future, Malaysian incorporated companies can get on board too. Absolutely. That's the hope. And in fact, now a Malaysian company that has a U.S. subsidiary or a U.S. parent company can raise on Republic. They have to go through a few hoops, but it should be easier. Our goal is that down the road, a middle class mom in Kuala Lumpur can invest in a tech company in Silicon Valley as easily as someone in New York investing $100 into a food truck or a startup in Malaysia. The world, the financial world is going to be much more interconnected globally. That's our hope, our, our conviction. And we think that a lot of good is going to come out of that, a lot of prosperity, but on a more fair fashion. And how would you define success? Happiness, being able to be more and more and more happy every day, within a day, is the definition of success. It's not about credential. It's not about a job. It's not even about, certainly not about how much money you have in your bank account. It's not even about how many people you serve or you impact. None of it matters if you're unhappy doing it. The number one thing that anyone that drives everyone to do what they do is to be happier. Many people forget that that's the core reason. So how happy one person is in his or her own mind, and certainly that's how I define for myself in a particular day or a particular period of time, defines the person's success within that time frame. I believe you've also said that you asked the question, how do you have the most profound experience? And I wonder what has been your most profound experience? Profound experience, I think, is another way of defining happiness or pleasantness. 
you know, when you're like so in love, you feel like that profoundness. If you're very close to your parents and just eating a meal with them, you feel that profoundness. If you're a mom, having almost nothing and working on a rice field in northern Vietnam or in the countryside of Malaysia, but your newborn kid there and you take a moment and you go and you hug him or her, that is profoundness. So it comes in all these different shapes and forms, only subjectively what is profound for you. If drawing, painting give you that sense of peace, but you have to go to the dentist's office because you're a dentist, because your dad made you a dentist, you're not doing what you find to be most profound. So the definition of profoundness uh, or profoundity is tie into a subjective sense of, is this worthwhile? And we usually the happiest when we feel it's most worthwhile, right? When you hang out with your friends, but you're like, oh no, this is an obligation. I really would just much prefer to be home solving some family issue. Let's say your sister and your mom are having a quarrel. You really want to fix that. You're sitting with three of your best friends. Usually you enjoy it so much. You know you have something to do. And so you kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. Great girl. Just laughing. But you're not really with it. Being solving conflict is actually more profound than enjoying time with your besties. It varies. Only we each got to ask ourselves the question every day uh, and it ties into happiness. Well, thank you, Ken, so much for the time that you've spent on this podcast. I normally end all of my interviews with these questions. So for the first one, it's this, have you found your why? Yes. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I'm not looking to leave behind a legacy. I'm looking to make sure that more of my life more of my day, hopefully get to 99%. It's just ecstatic, profound and impactful. So it's all about the presence, not about chasing some future legacy. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Ooh, my definition of success or the common societal definition of success, let me answer them both. Societal definition of success, because I know why you're asking this question, what does it take to become a successful founder, to become a successful professional? The number one trait is being happy. You are your best when you are happiest. And the second important trait is perseverance, because if you're happy, but if you keep trying at it and maintain a happy state of mind, then you're going to eventually get there. My answer, because I define success on being happy in and by itself, is encapsulated whatever you're doing that makes you happy that's success you don't have to do anything else but for most i think the state of mind of being happy is a key ingredient to getting you to what society defines as achievement because you're just your best self generally and where can people go to follow what you're doing get involved in what republic is doing as well Yes, we're at republic.co, not .com, .co, republic.co, and I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter and occasionally on WeChat and Telegram as well. So if you send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter, I'll get back. If I am having a particularly hectic day, it may take a day or two for me to respond, but I do get back to pretty much everyone who, who reach out. Is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered yet? You know, the only thing I would like to share is that society, technology, humanity, Things are changing very fast. The only way to be your fullest is to get involved, but get involved smartly. You have not participated in private investing or crypto, and you have a dollar that you can lose. Use it as like educational fee. Make an investment or buy a cryptocurrency that you can afford or that you know you're going to lose all of the money just to learn. And I think for founders, for anyone who's an aspiring entrepreneur, it's the opposite. Read a lot about the different ways of financing or whatnot. Before going out there, just don't blindly approach VCs and waste a lot of time. Uh, so learn, read a lot before getting in. And for investors and everyone else, stop reading, just start doing it, but doing it smartly. <laughs> and that was the end of episode 52. The show notes and transcript can be found at sellthismywhy.com forward slash 52, alongside a link to subscribe to the weekly newsletter for this podcast. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting a business magnate in the hotel industry who is the heir to Nepal's first and only Forbes billionaire and the fourth generation multinational family business that owns 136 companies in 15 different business verticals across five continents. 
including hotels, financial services, education, energy, real estate, biotech, alternative medicine, and consumer electronics. To know more about what it's like to grow up inheriting a family business and navigating through the global pandemic in the hospitality industry, which counts Sri Lanka, Dubai, and Africa as some of its main investment countries, then stay tuned and see you next Sunday.